take refuge in the Buddha. I take refuge in the Dharma. I take refuge in the Sangha. Are you breathing? Before I asked, were you aware that you were breathing? Are you aware now? Does the breath change when you are aware of it? Does it come alive? Become a universe into itself that you can enter and become? Before you were aware of the breath, was it dead to you? Were you dead to yourself? Dead to reality? I invite you to breathe with me. To breathe a deep inhale. And a full exhale. I invite you to keep breathing with this kind of awareness for the entire talk, the entire day, your entire life. Breath. The word doesn't quite match the experience. Say that for most things. Breath, prana, life force, chi, energy, spirit. As meditators, we probably have some relationship to the breath. Perhaps it's our go-to practice, what anchors us in the present moment, Practice day in and day out. Come back home, it says. Perhaps it's become a good friend, a relative. Perhaps the breath is a koan that feels evasive, impenetrable. How do you simply let the body breathe? How do you trust that you are being breathed? So natural. The universe breathes us. We don't need to do anything. It's been happening since we were born. 
will happen until we die, till we take our last breath, till the universe takes its last breath through us. And it's so subtle. I have tied myself up in knots with breath practice. I forced the breath, held the breath tightly in trying to count to 10. I've counted to 36. Absent-mindedly, just continuing to say numbers as my mind spun in so many other directions. I've obsessively said one over and over again, maybe 13 times within one inhale, catching every little tendril of thought and turning it into a one. I've tried desperately to relax tension, felt the breath clog up in my throat, have tried to convince Chosen Roshi that I stopped breathing, have wanted to stop breathing, cursed the breath, felt cursed by the breath, and I've fallen in love with the breath. I felt the breath breathing me, the whole body breathing, open to the whole room breathing. Everything alive through the breath. Everything awake through the breath. I felt cared for by the breath, connected. Realized that this breath isn't mine. It's a gift. I've sat at the source of breath watched breath, felt breath emerge, been born with the breath anew. And I've forgotten all of this. And you know what? The breath doesn't really care. (laughs) It forgives. Doesn't care about our forgetfulness. Forgives any moment of inattention, manipulation, any moment of pride or feeling like I really got this breath, any moment of anger or repression, forgives. Forgives and takes the next inhale. Forgives and pauses at the end of the exhale. Forgives and panics sometimes, hyperventilates, but continues to breathe. The breath is a constant giver of life, connecting us to all, a constant companion. I'd say friend. As long as we are alive, we will breathe. We will be breathed. As long as we are aware, we can align attention, body, heart, mind with breath. We can be breath. 
we can come home to here and now through the breath. Breath is a great teacher. Can show us, highlight our neuroses, the way we attempt to control reality. Everything I just said earlier was a projection onto a simple organic process that happens whether I'm aware of it or not. And it's a great teacher as we settle into session because the breath teaches letting go. It's one of its core teachings. Inhale, exhale. Inhale, expire. Breathe out, expire. Breath is an expression, a physical expression of offering, of surrender, of letting go. It's also a physical expression of death. The breath can be, we can ride the breath, ride the exhale. Ride the exhale and let go. Die to our past. Die to whatever views or fixed beliefs are floating in the mind. We're identified with our projected future thoughts about ourselves and the world. Kazan Zenji said, to be dead to personal views and fragmented thoughts. You could hear that as don't breathe life into delusion. Transfer attention from the thinking mind to the breath and you're in the present moment. No longer caught, simply here letting go. The Dalai Lama says that the two best practices to prepare for death are compassion and letting go. In a way, these are one practice. The willingness to surrender this life for the sake of all beings, the Bodhisattva vow is compassion. And letting go is a subtle practice, one that we continue to refine and learn from. Sometimes I think we might hear letting go as getting rid of, pushing away, But we can also recognize that we are being let go of continuously. We are being expired every moment. The moment you become aware of the breath, it is already changing. It is already different than the moment you became aware of it. It's shifting right in our awareness, right in our grasp, so to say, so to speak. 
it's already becoming its next thing. And this is true of all sense experience, any body sensation we try to locate is already shifting within our attention, shifting, changing, unlocatable. You can say this with thought too, thought, once you become aware of thinking, and this is one of the beautiful aspects of meditation, once you become aware that you're hooked in thought, you've already let it go. That shining the light is, in a way, you can't hold on to the thought. It's already changing. It's already moving into its next thing. Whatever that is. In a sense, we can't hold on to a single thing. We are let go. We are aligned with reality every moment. Letting go is a fundamental acceptance. It's enacting a deep trust. Chosen Roshi asked us this morning to investigate what keeps us from simply resting in the present moment. What keeps us from being alive and awake completely as we are right now. Where does attention go when it drifts from the present moment? Are we trying to get something? Are we trying to get rid of something? Is it fear that takes us away from the present moment? And if it's fear, what are we afraid of? Death, non-existence, the peaceful, deep, yet sometimes chilling silence of a quiet mind, the vastness of our own presence, the radiance of our own attention, The unknown, the uncertain, the great mystery. Why are we afraid to die? And are we afraid to die? Perhaps maybe we're afraid to live, to fully, actually live this life, this life. Not the life we have concocted in our mind, but this one right here, this life. The Zen literature is full of stories of Zen masters who fearlessly and many times playfully enter death. There are also full, the Zen literature is full of stories of Zen masters who fearlessly and often playfully enter life. They enter death as if it were just as significant and ordinary 
as the next moment. Many times in many different recordings, there's a story of a Zen master gathering their students and letting them know they are going to die in a week or in a few days and telling them not to get upset and not to have a funeral. It's no big deal. Maybe throw a party. And many accounts of teachers minutes, seconds before they die, reciting a poem out loud or writing a calligraphy, many poems written by Zen masters right before they die. This one is from Kozan Ichikyo. He said, he wrote, Empty-handed I entered this world, barefoot I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. And he, like many of the stories, uh, wrote that poem and then died in Zazen. We are going to die. You are going to die. You are already dying. I am already dying. What does this mean to you? When I say it, do you believe it? When you said it last night, did you believe it? Are you, are we living our lives knowing that we are dying? That we will die? It could be tonight. It could be at the end of this talk. It could be in the middle of this talk. This could be my last breath. This could be our last breath. Do you believe this? I must not, because I continued writing. Or maybe I do, and so I continued writing. What does it take to truly receive this truth? We will die. We don't know when. We will recite the five remembrances at the end of every night during this session. I am getting older. I am of the nature to grow old. I am made to suffer illness. Health is not what I am. I am already dying. Death will find me. All that is dear to me and everyone I love come to change. Death will find them too. These five remembrances are part of the Buddha's teaching because we forget because it's easy to forget. 
So we must remind ourselves, we must remember. These five remembrances also mirror, and I'm aware I only read four of them, they, also, they mirror the insight that the Buddha had when he was still the prince Siddhartha. And there are the, the three sites that the Buddha saw that inspired the Buddha to practice, to leave his life of luxury. The story goes that the Buddha was quite sheltered, living a wealthy life, the life of a prince. And convinced his charioteer, Chana, to take him out of the palace walls and let him see the city. And so he goes, and the first, he sees probably a lot of things, but one of the first things that strikes his attention is he sees somebody whose face is so wrinkled. You can imagine somebody who's maybe living on the streets or just working outside in India, quite old, wrinkled face, maybe a little leathery from the sun. And the Buddha sees this face, his skin, and is concerned for this person's well-being and and even a little horrified. What's going on? What's happened to this person? What's happening to their face? And Chana says, well, that's an old person. That happens to everyone. That will happen to you. Then the next uh, person that strikes the Buddha's attention is somebody who is sick, curled up on the side of the road, perhaps a leper, sores open on their body. And the Buddha sees this person, again, is concerned and also a little horrified. And so what's going on with this person? And Chana says, well, that's disease. All conditioned beings, all human beings are subject to disease. This will happen to you. And next, the Buddha sees a corpse rotting on the side of the road, perhaps maggot-infested, Again, concerned and a little horrified, the Buddha says, well, what has happened to this person? Chana says, well, this person is dead. This is a corpse. This is their dead body. This will happen to everyone. This will happen to you. And these three sights impacted the Buddha. He saw that and felt the impact oh yes, this will happen to me too, created a sense of existential angst. I need to do something about this. I'm afraid of what lies ahead. The uncertainty of my well-being. Then the Buddha saw someone, a practitioner, and saw the peace on the practitioner's face. Someone was meditating, 
under a tree and asked Chano, what's, what's this person? And this is a renunciate. And that inspired the Buddha that there was a path to happiness, to peace of mind. And that perhaps one could have peace of mind in the midst of sickness, old age, and death. So the Buddha began their practice. When we receive teachings like the five remembrances, it's one thing to hear the teaching and we'll recite the teaching. And it's a whole different thing to really take it in, contemplate it like a koan, let it work on you, meditate in it, reflect on it. And that's what leads to insight. And sometimes just hearing the teaching, that whole process happens at once. We hear the teaching, we take it in so deeply and have a kind of realization from that. And sometimes it needs to be digested. We need to continuously remember or orient our minds towards the teaching. So I invite you now to look at your hand. This hand is getting older. Perhaps, well, I invite you, not perhaps, I invite you to remember into a younger version of this hand. Remember how it may have looked maybe five years ago, ten years ago, how it might have felt. Perhaps how it felt to use it earlier in life. Remember what it felt to touch. Has that changed? Has the sensitivity of the hand changed? The flexibility of the hand changed? Feeling tone of the hand. Perhaps you can remember back to it being tiny. Tiny, tiny, tiny hand. Pudgy little hand. Delicate fingers that like to grip things. Trying to make sense out of the world. Examine your hands in its present form. Perhaps you see some scars, places that it's been, things that it's done, that have left marks over the years. Things that it's touched, felt, caressed ways that it's worked, those all contained within the hand still. Where, where is this hand going? Can you imagine now what it might look like or feel like in five years, 
what touch sensations may change. What might it do for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. How will it change? How will it age? What will be left of this hand in a hundred years? You can continue that contemplation on your own. The Buddha taught their disciples to contemplate death. And there's a sutra or a sutta in the Pali Canon called the Maranasati Sutta, the Mindfulness of Death Sutta. And this is how it begins. I have heard that at one time the Blessed One was staying at, at Nadika, the brick hall where he addressed the monks, monks, they replied, yes, Lord. And the Buddha said, mindfulness of death when developed and pursued is a great fruit, a great benefit. It gains a footing in the deathless, has the deathless as its final end. Therefore, you should develop mindfulness of death. And then there was a certain monk who addressed the Blessed One and said, I already developed mindfulness of death. And the Buddha says, well, how do you do that? And the monk said, well, I contemplate that I might live for a day and a night, that I might be able to practice. And then another monk comes forward and said, well, I contemplate, may I live for another day? And then a monk, another monk comes forward and says, well, I contemplate, may I live for the interval it takes to eat a meal? And then the next one comes forward and says, well, I contemplate the length of time it takes to swallow three morsels of food. And then the next one comes forward and says, well, I do one morsel of food. And then someone else comes forward and says, well, I do one inhalation and exhalation. And then someone else comes forward and says, I do contemplate death or the nature of life for just one inhale or one exhale. And the Buddha said, well, excellent, excellent. The most... Uh, beneficial way to practice mindfulness of death is to practice mindfulness of death for the duration of one inhalation, for the duration of one exhalation, for the duration it takes to chew one morsel of food. This continuous contemplation, really sinking into, well, this could be my last This could be my last inhalation. This could be my last exhalation. And when eating, this could be my last bite. This flavor, the last flavor I ever taste.
This is a way we can practice during session. We have this rarefied environment that we can really get that close to experience. Each breath, each inhale, each exhale, each taste, each touch, each footstep. Did you ever know someone or perhaps you've had the experience of being sick or in a lot of pain that to think in days ahead is torture because the pain is so unremitting to think that it would last another day and night. The mind just can't even do that. It's pure torture. And even to think in hours is just too much time. It just doesn't work. It's too much. And even to think in minutes. But somehow you can just be with it for this next breath. And then the next breath. And then the next breath. Because it's bringing you closer and closer to the actual experience and not in your mind projecting like it's going to be like this forever. And actually invites us in to the sickness, to the pain, to just this exhale, just this inhale. David White says, pain is the doorway to the here and now, saying to each of us, there is no other place, no other limb, joint, pang, sharpness, or heartbreak. Pain and sickness grant us this kind of entrance into presence. So does session. How to stay acutely aware of this. That's the practice. Contemplating death attuned to being let go of each moment. And this can bring us into a striking appreciation or recognition of the preciousness, the preciousness of this life, of this moment. This moment which will not happen again and has not happened before. That's the gift of impermanence. That's the gift of this meticulous study this fine and subtle study of the nature of change, the nature of experience. You can appreciate that each breath is exquisitely unique. It's never, there's no repeat. And when we actually pay attention, we taste that. way like you're in the midst of an inhale you're not thinking about like oh I want this to happen again it's just so good and then you're in an exhale you're not thinking about the inhale that was great two breaths ago you're just in the exhale appreciation is a natural response in humans when we know something is impermanent I think we've all had this experience. Maybe 
as sitting in the zendo and the bell rings to get up for kinhin. And you just want to hold a little bit longer in the state of mind that you're in, the state of body, state of heart. Just knowing that it's going to change and just savoring that last moment of samadhi. Or the miracle of having blueberries for breakfast in February. And, I mean, perhaps savoring all of the blueberries in your bowl or that last one. Just making sure you taste that last one. Because who knows when you'll have a blueberry again. Or the sun. The sun today. I caught so many people just sitting there, letting it caress your face. Feeling the heat. Because it has been a long time. And I don't know when it's going to happen again. Appreciating the blossoms coming up in spring. Walking slowly out the women's, um, outside of the women's dorm, there's a Daphne blooming. And the scent is just so exquisite. I walk slowly because I know like maybe a month and I only walk past there a few times a day so really get get it anything any any experience is fleeting the fleeting sounds of the foghorn this morning the bird songs the wild geese that we've all been appreciating this winter they will fly away We don't live in the valley all year round. Everything we attend to can open us up to its beauty. And it's beautiful because it's fleeting, because it's changing, because it's impermanent. Human beings' relationships are like this. We allow our hearts to break a little. We've probably all had moments in our lives where the truth of impermanence enters us deeply, where our ordinary life is ruptured and there's a gap, a pause. Maybe it's an accident, an unexpected loss of a loved one, a diagnosis, the end of a relationship, Even the loss of someone you knew who was slowly dying, but their absence is remarkable. Or a move, a job change. There's like, we hit an incongruency with the way things were going and our even subtle projections of what the future was going to look like given how the present was. And suddenly it's not going to happen that way. And something is destabilized. And there's a shock. Could even experience it as a loss of identity. This whole future that I projected, or even subtly was leaning into, is not possible. Is uncertain now. There's space the space of the unknown. 
People experience grief and loss in so many different ways, but as practitioners, these moments can be gifts from reality, parting the veils of who we thought we were, erasing the projected future, bringing us into question of the apparent continuity and permanence of myself, my life, the unspoken narrative of a life we are writing and editing continuously in our minds, writing on top of the way things actually are. And reality sends us small wake-up calls and big shifts. So there are the spontaneous shifts in routine, like a flat tire, a missed alarm clock, an angry, disapproving look from a friend, a sick child, a leg spasm, a stub toe, cold coffee in the morning, burnt soup. Things that get under the skin or change the routine or aren't as we expected, that can help us let go, can help us ease up, can help us enter and align with what is real. But usually they invoke complain, complaint, reactivity, a fight, a resistance. What if every push up against our views, our way, against the mind that says, I'm right, what about me, was a push to surrender, to accept, was a push towards gratefulness, towards seeing the gift of this life. the preciousness of this life? What if each push was a push from our nature, from the universe, saying, wake up? Mumon Khan, Case 47. Totsu... Totsu... Tos... Sorry. (laughs) Three barriers. To acquire after the truth, groping your way through the underbrush of your mind is for the purpose of seeing your nature. Here, now, where is your nature? That's the first barrier. Second barrier. If you realize your own nature, surely you are free from life and death. When the light falls from your eyes the last time when you die, how can you be free from life and death? Third barrier, when you are free from life and death, you will know where to go. When the five elements dissolve and the body decomposes, where do you go? Some traditions of Buddhism are very interested in what happens at the time of death and after death. If you don't practice and prepare for death, you might not even recognize you are dead. Perhaps you died last night. Perhaps you died last night and you're so attached to your life that this is all just a fabrication in your mind. Or maybe this is a dream. Maybe you're still sleeping in your bed during the session 
break in the middle of the day, dreaming this talk. Hopefully there's something useful in it. I was very interested in this question when I first started practicing of how do I know I'm alive? Or how would I know if I'm dead? Could this really just be the unfolding of karma? Maybe I died years ago. Byron Katie says, I used to be afraid to die and then I realized I'm already dead. In Zen we have this saying, die before you, you die. Let the illusion of a separate self go. Anam Thupten says, one has to let the illusion of the self die again and again. This death is deeper than physical death. This death allows our anguish to dissolve. It's not the end of something. It is the beginning of a life where love and intelligence blossoms. How do we practice this? Letting go of the compulsion to create and sustain the idea of a separate self. Come to rest here, now, with curiosity, sustained care. Inquire into the nature of this life. Keep returning to the present. Let the, the breath guide and sustain your practice. It's not about becoming something, but being who you genuinely are. Close with a story from The Hidden Lamp. This is the story of Ling Zhao and her father, Layman Pong. It's called Ling Zhao Goes First. When it was time for Layman Pong to die, he said to his daughter, Ling Zhao, go look at the sun and tell me when it's exactly noon. Ling Zhao went to the door and looked out, saying, The sun has re reached the zenith, but there's a total eclipse. When Layman Pong stepped outside to see this remarkable event, Ling Zhao sat down in her father's seat, put her palms together, and passed away. Layman Pong looked from the doorway and smiled, saying, My daughter has gone ahead of me once again. He waited seven days, and then he died. Another example of Zen masters being able to play in the field of life and death, fearlessly, playfully, joke, cracking jokes right before death. Well, please let your practice be continuous. Nakamichi, a haiku poet, says, said at the time of his death, Ice in a hot world, my life melts. Melt. Melt into the present moment. Die to your stories. Let go. Let be. There is nowhere to go. You are already home. 